Test. Test. Okay, let me... Test, test. Test, test. Test. Hello? Yep. Test, test. Here. Just swivel. stare at you the well, whole just time. Swivel over here. For <laughs> now, um, we want to talk about what you want to talk about, but this just sort of goes wherever, it's, it's, wherever it's, it's we take. It's a free-flowing conversation. But I need to think a little bit about it's gonna it. It's going to be great. I've been thinking about a bunch of other things until now. Um, now do we use these? Yes, we do. We do. But not yet. I want to just say, you see Glenn's piece in the Wall Street Journal today. I did not. Oh, damn, 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 damn. What did he say? We got two minutes. <laughs> he said Biden's terrible. Biden's terrible, terrible, terrible. Hmm. Terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Hmm. Just really. The great Glenn Hubbard. That, that, that just repeated it for 750 words. Did you That's see an exact video? transcription. I did not. Oh, <laughs> Maybe we should take a minute to go read yeah. it. Uh, well, we won't ask about that because this won't be published until two weeks from now. So ask about a specific column that just appeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think we should start out by how do you think the Biden team is doing mm. in managing the economy? Mm-hmm. Go with that for a while. Mm-hmm. Is that all right? Sure. And then I'll I'll listen to what you say. And... I am a pro. You <laughs> can ask me anything you want. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It'll be great. Um, so there's that labor market. The long-term prospects of the middle class. The mm-hmm. American dream's not dead. It's really? not dead. Really? Not Still. Do that. Yeah. It's not dead. Still not dead. Look Still how, alive. Look how great it's done. We defeated a plague in a year. Yeah, there you go. Uh, 
uh, the rise of industrial policy on the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sick people. <laughs> sick. You notice how he, he says they're sick, but Biden, no comment. <laughs> We're reserving the comment. I hold them to a higher standard. Who? <laughs> oh. oh, our own side. Yeah. Oh, no. I hold the president of the United States to the highest standard. Well, I used to do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Then, 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 then something happened to the presidency. All right. Yeah. It lost a little um, bit of luster. Oh, the other thing, uh, Glenn, with a, lot you. Of, a lot of language about work over benefits. Mm-hmm, sure. Work over benefits. We love work. Work, yes. We love work. Yes, we do. <laughs> Um, and the long-term cost of entitlements. It's not cheap. Okay. I might ask you, should the right give up this idea of trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act? Clearly, it's the law of the land, and <coughs> why don't we give that up and work on something else as a solution? Maybe you, we'll let you weigh in on The Supreme Court is failing us. <laughs> oh, okay. What's the point of having our justices if oh, they yeah. won't That's right. That's right. the right way? The one institution in America that's behaving properly. You're going to criticize them, too. We brought three lawsuits to them. Yeah. They give them three opportunities. They keep failing. <laughs> so something is either wrong with you or wrong with them. Well, I think I know the answer. <laughs> yeah, well, we know that you think you yeah. <laughs> well, I've never worn the headphones before. This is new. All right, John, turn us on. Do you want uh, Do you want the headphones to hear? Well, yeah, I made it Have we been recording? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna cut it out. Obviously, we'll delete what we've been recording no, so far. Outtakes are very big on the show. We like outtakes. <laughs> we use them. Phoebe produces Basically them. Basically, the whole podcast. Do you like the outtakes, Phoebe? <laughs> yeah. Phoebe we says it's the whole podcast. Some of them in. Yeah. <laughs> They're often quite good, um, but I don't actually hear anything through the. I want you no. to know, I don't hear anything. Through Do you hear me when I talk? Though I hear you, you hear it, but you hear it in your headphones. I, no, no, I think I hear it just normally. Yeah, I don't I think hear I hear. I don't think I'm hearing anything in my headphones. I, the headphones are I not. Think g- I am. <laughs> I, think, I think we're just <laughs> imagining. Let me, let me it. Sure okay, it. so you see TVs, what you think. TVs are certainly working. Yeah. Testing. Can you hear us? In the headphones. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, really. You just hear it more. You think it's a. You think you hear it. Okay. Are, if you want to see, TVs are certainly working. I, no, it's okay. I, I think they're playing a trick on us. I think they are. The young people. The young people. <laughs> the young people are playing a trick on us. All right. Start us off, Phoebe. All right. So I'll start out with an intro view, and then we'll get into it. Joining us today on Banter is Michael Strain, who's the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur Burns Scholar in Political Economy here at AEI. He oversees AEI's work on a range of economic topics, including financial markets, international trade and finance, tax and budget policy, welfare economics, and healthcare policy. Dr. Strain's own research focuses on labor economics and public finance. His latest book, The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It, was published in February of 2020. Before joining AEI, he was the administrator of the New York Census Research Data Center. He has also worked as an economist at the U.S. Census Bureau and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Thanks for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Phoebe, it's great to have Dr. Strain with us because he is brilliant and funny, so we're hoping we can have a little bit of humor on this podcast. I think we're going to have a blast. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start out with something serious. Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate the President Biden's economic policies since he's been president? Well, uh, I think the, the president has had one major policy achievement, which is the American Rescue Plan that was signed into law in February of an 2020. achievement? You call it an achievement? Accomplishment. That was a political achievement. What, it, is it an economic achievement? One major uh, uh, action that has taken place. <laughs> okay. How about that? Um, that sounds better. And I think that that, uh, that law was significantly too large uh, and poorly structured. 
I think it was too large uh, in the sense that it uh, stands to set the economy back uh, more than push the economy forward. Uh, it creates the risk of overheating. It creates the risk of the Fed choking off the recovery uh, earlier than than it should. Um, and uh, that would leave behind the least skilled, least experienced, most vulnerable workers in the economy. And so I think it creates – I think a, a bill of that size creates real risks to to, to characterize it. The, the, the law – authorized $1.9 trillion of spending for an economy that had you know, maybe a $300 billion hole. It took place in an economic environment that already had substantial fiscal policy stimulus. $900 billion of stimulus was signed into law by President Trump in December of 2020. Uh, so it brought the total fiscal impulse to about $2.8 trillion. Again, uh, uh, in an economy with about a $300 billion um, uh, hole to fill. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's an order of magnitude too large. Uh, so so in, the, um, in the sort of um, comparisons of economic policy malpractice, mm. how does that rank compared to, for instance, President Trump's major uh, tax uh, bill achievement or uh, action, however you want to call it? <laughs> uh, would this be a more serious Act of malpractice than what President Trump did. Well, I think there was there was quite a bit to like about the 2017 tax law. Um, not not all of it was 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 good, of course. But reducing the corporate income tax rate was a bipartisan goal. President Obama wanted to lower it down from uh, from the 35 percent where it was down to 28 percent, um, and Republicans wanted to lower it down to. You know the teens, or 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 uh, uh, at least the low twenties. President Trump got down to twenty one. That's lower than Democrats would have liked. Uh, higher than than Republicans would have liked, but a significant reduction relative to where it was, and and a big uh, increase in 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 U.S. competitiveness uh, as as a consequence. Uh, there were parts of uh, President Trump's tax law that uh, were. Uh, you know, not nearly as as well designed. A lot of the individual income side provisions, um, but uh, I think if I were I- in Congress, I would have uh, uh, voted for voted the Trump for... proposal and against the Biden proposal. I think that's correct. Oh, that's just such that's music to my ears. <laughs> uh, so where are we now? Is the is the economy not starting as fat as healthily or as successfully, or are the problems we're going to feel? In the economy, average people out working and, and trying to earn a living, is the damage being done by the excesses of the Biden uh, Act going to happen next year or the year after that, and not this year? Well, I think we're experiencing some of it right now. And so, uh, on a on kind of a macroeconomic level, the 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 American Rescue Plan um, was too large in the sense that it pushed the demand side of the economy too hard. And we are seeing the consequences of that um, with uh, uh, significant increases in consumer prices. Um, on a kind of microeconomic level, some of the constituent components of the bill were were quite counterproductive. Uh, and we are seeing, I think, the consequences of the substantial increase in uh, the generosity of unemployment benefits relative to standard state-provided unemployment benefits. That is, I think, uh, keeping people out of the workforce. 
Um, and uh, so what you have is a situation where the demand side of the economy is surging. The supply side of the economy is struggling to keep up. That's manifesting itself in significant increases in wages, um, which is you know, good for the workers who are currently working, except for the fact that consumer prices are also rising uh, significantly as well. So the purchasing power of those of those wages uh, uh, is, is not increasing nearly as much as as, as the nominal wages are. Um, and it's uh, fueling the increase in consumer prices by uh, boosting labor costs for businesses. So, uh, you know, it is a good thing that uh, I believe uh, uh, at, at last count, 26 governors are ending their participation in uh, the uh, $300 unemployment benefit supplement that President Biden signed into law. That will help alleviate uh, supply-side constraints in the labor market. That should help mitigate uh, uh, unhelpful um, uh, price increases, at least to some extent. Uh, but it would have been better not to have that in the first place. One of the debates that I'm picking up, uh, Ezra Klein wrote a piece about this recently and, and others on the left write about this, that that um, they seem to prefer to reduce poverty or hardship among low-income families by transfer payments and not employment. Um, where are you on that? Which which is a better way to help people get, get a start or increase their livelihood? Is it employment or benefits? Well, I think you know I've I've noticed the same thing. The um, the the political left in the United States has always been friendlier to transfer payments uh, than than the political right. The right has uh, has been more concerned about the unintended consequences of those payments um, and uh, more concerned uh, uh, or, or 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 has believed more strongly in the importance of of, of self sufficiency, um, but. Both the right and the left, at least the center right and the center left, have uh, recognized the importance of work. And and uh, that was manifest perhaps most prominently in the 1990s welfare reforms. Um, there seems to be uh, uh, some, some change on the left. Uh, the left seems to be walking away from uh, the importance of work. There seems to be uh, a growing... Uh, consensus that the jobs that are available to you know the bottom third of workers something something like that are are not worth having uh, and that it would be it would be better uh, simply to um, uh, transfer uh, income to those households and not have them work you know especially if they don't want to work uh, you know the idea that um, working uh, at a fast food restaurant, flipping burgers, doing manual labor on construction uh, job sites, things of this nature. Um, I think center the center left in the 1990s would have said, well, those are good opportunities. Right. They uh, would have p- pushed back against dead-end jobs or bad jobs or crummy right. jobs, that rhetoric. But they don't anymore. They don't anymore. That's but, do right. you, but do you? Oh, well, I, yes, I do. Uh, you do? Certainly. Um, you know, I... I think that uh, on on an economic level, those jobs are extremely important. And if we don't like uh, the the wages that are being offered in the economy, uh, in at the bottom end of the labor market, then the solution is to uh, improve the skills and training of workers so that they can command higher wages in the labor market. Uh, and that should be the policy focus. Um, uh, to uh, to the problem of of, of low wages uh, on 
on on a. Can I just interrupt you on that one? Because in in terms of you're a labor economist, in terms of the best way to improve the skills and training of an adult, let's mm-hmm. say a 24 year old mm-hmm. with a high school degree but no more, is that more likely to happen while that person is working? And getting training in work or more likely have to happen while that person is out of work entirely? I think uh, the the evidence um, is growing that work-based learning really is the, the best path forward. Uh, and the reason for that, I think, is, is, is straightforward. You're, you're kind of allowing employers in the labor market to write the curriculum for job training. Uh, the employers are saying these are the skills that that are valuable to us. These are the skills that we are that we are interested in paying for. Uh, and so, instead of having uh, uh, you know community college or or the Department of Labor decide uh, what skills are valuable and important, the market is deciding. Employers are deciding. Uh, and when you can when you can create a partnership between employers and and local educational institutions like community colleges uh, where workers can earn income by providing valuable services employers are determining uh, what what training is taking place what skills are being taught uh, and, and and that of course is driven by uh, the, the skills that they find valuable that they're interested in paying for and a worker can walk out of there with some kind of a credential uh, then your your uh, a credential that's recognized in the market that other employers would recognize, you know. Then I think you you're you're in a much better place than uh, than the United States has been in with with traditional job training programs. Those so, those sorts of work based learning programs um, really do seem to be showing a lot of potential. So I want to bring Phoebe in here for just a minute. Phoebe, <laughs> um, you're a young person here in the District of Columbia working and living and buying things. Have you seen inflation yet? Um, I don't think so. You haven't in <laughs> restaurants or food purchases? The biggest or? thing I've seen is that there's no Ubers. Oh, there's no Ubers. There's the price no is Ubers too low, or Lyft drivers. <laughs> the price is too low. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's the main impact I've seen. Well, Sarah <laughs> and I have seen some inflation. We, we pick it up in certain... Our restaurants, I think, are, are more expensive Much these more days. Expensive. Food has gone up in some categories, and, and my, my local wife... cheeseburger is twice <laughs> as expensive as it used to be. I know it went from nine dollars <laughs> to eighteen dollars. That's what I love about you, Michael Strain. <laughs> a cheeseburger is high on your list of things to think about. Cheeseburgers are delicious. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> you but and I, I have been to that restaurant together. Yes, we have. And I, I, I was talking to my daughter. Had some friends to our house uh, a couple weekends ago, and. They were very uh, young women, and they were very concerned about the their 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 meals. And there was a, seemed to be an excessive concern it's about very expensive calorie intake, not because of the price. <laughs> and uh, I reminded them that when I first met Sarah and I, we went on our first or second date. Uh, she said to me, uh, "I just want you to know something." And I said, "What's that?" She said, "I'm not afraid of a cheeseburger." And I love that about That's her. Fantastic. <laughs> yes, yes. That's fantastic. So anyway, I have seen inflation. Inflation is there seems to be the right. Is there inflation right now? Is 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 the inflation that's happening now serious and real? And what should the Fed do about it? Well, it's certainly real. Uh, so uh, you know, standard measures of of price inflation uh, are significantly elevated. They're elevated relative to uh, what we are used to experiencing. 
in the U.S. economy, uh, and they are elevated relative to the Fed's target for inflation, which is which is two uh, percent. Um, are they whether or not they are serious? I think is uh, really the question. And there are uh, two views on this. One view is that the economy is coming out of this you know, weird uh, 15, 16-month period. Uh, the demand side of the economy is incredibly strong. Again, around $3 trillion of fiscal stimulus, around $2 trillion of uh, excess uh, savings, uh, an economy that is reopening that's allowing people to go out and spend money. Uh, the supply side of the economy uh, is restricted. The unemployment benefits certainly, but also issues with uh, uh, child care provision, schools being closed are also keeping people out of the workforce. Supply chain issues are making it much harder uh, for businesses to, to, to produce goods and services. Uh, a shortage of computer chips has made it hard to build new cars. Uh, supply chain issues have kept the door handle off my office door. Uh, until uh, uh, this weekend, I believe that's a little uh, that's a little um, slap at AI management. Oh no 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 no. Don't realize that. <laughs> no no no! That's Michael saying no, 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 no. somebody can't get my door fixed. It's, it was actually the bolt. They could they could the bolts yeah, were the I, shipment I for the bolts were delayed. You, you wanted to preface it uh, saying I don't mean to disparage the AI efforts to help you. Someone else, the economy generally, is causing your problem. I'm saying that uh, <laughs> that that in daily life, <laughs> and I assume our listeners are experiencing yes. other things as well. We yes. we 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 bought some uh, furniture for our house, and uh, you know, a table, a lamp, these sorts of things. Incredible delays because of uh, uh, transportation supply yeah. chain issues. Uh, so, get to the bottom line: are, is there inflation that's real, and should the Fed raise interest rates? One view is that this is all temporary. Yeah, uh, and uh, that these sort of these sorts of supply and demand imbalances will work themselves out over time. Uh, you know, certainly by the fall, uh, and uh, that uh, we shouldn't really worry. And in fact, that 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 some inflation is helpful after after uh, uh, a long period of time with uh, below target uh, price inflation. And then another view is that um, what is happening right now. Uh, is uh, more troubling. It has uh, the potential for deeper roots, that the supply side of the economy will not come back the way that uh, the optimists think, and that the psychology around wage and price increases is changing. And that is really the key. Uh, I think if you look at the at the kind of fundamentals of the economy right now, there is... There is uh, uh, not a whole lot of reason to be concerned that any of the price increases we're seeing are going to stick around. Um, the concern is whether or not six months, nine months of, of this uh, changes the way that people think about price inflation. Uh, and if that happens, if uh, households and businesses expect inflation to continue, even if they're wrong, if that's what their expectation is, if workers expect inflation to continue, then you can create a situation where uh, expectations about future inflation uh, become self-fulfilling. So and, in the old days, there used to be this analogy about the punch bowl. I'm sure you can tell our listeners the punch bowl fed thing, which what I always thought was – you anticipate the problem and take the punch bowl away before the party gets 
out of control. You know the punch bowl? The I do, yeah. Yes, yeah, okay. the punch bowl is where the fun happens. Is that over yeah. with now? Do no one no one think that anymore? That the Fed should wait till it really happens before they do anything? No, I think people think that. I think, uh, uh, you know... And the, first, just just tell them. What is what am I talking about when I talk about? What, so what you, what 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 you're talking about is that monetary policy acts with um, uh, sometimes long and variable lags, and so if the Fed wants to cool the economy this month, that's really tough to do with the tools that the Fed has available to it. And so what the Fed needs to do is think, you know, six months ahead, where's the economy likely to go, and then to act today. Not to try to affect economic conditions today, but to try to affect economic conditions. Or someone worried about a party getting so, out of control has exactly. to take the punch yeah, bowl yeah, away exactly. before it gets out of so control. If, yeah, so before you get up on the table and start <laughs> dancing, yes. uh, we want to take the punch bowl away so that you're never on the table in the first place. Uh, because once you're on the table, it's hard to get it's you off. Too late. You know? <laughs> exactly. uh, and, and I think that's the I think that's the idea. And that is, I think, what uh, uh, you know. That is still how the Fed is um, is is thinking about things. And so there was a a big meeting last week of the Federal Open Market Committee, um, and there was a lot of surprise because the uh, kind of consensus of the members of that committee seems to be shifting. Uh, that committee used to think that the first increases in interest rates would begin in 2024. Now the committee thinks that the first uh, 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 round of interest rate increases is likely to happen in 2023, and so that's that's the beginning of that conversation. That's the beginning of that of, of, of that conversation. The Fed chairman uh, seemed a little. Um, uh, irritated, maybe that um, that the views of the committee were receiving so much attention. Uh, uh, for listeners who follow financial news, I'm referring to the 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 dot plot, uh, and uh, I think it's reasonable to surmise, based on uh, Chairman Powell's press conference, that he does not believe that uh, that the first round of increases should happen in, in 2023. Um, but that but that seems to be where the committee as a whole is. And my expectation is that um, that that uh, that is still um, uh, too dovish, that as we continue to move forward through the summer, that the Fed is going to uh, be pulling the date of their expectations about uh, uh, the first increases in interest rates uh, uh, sooner and sooner. So let's talk about all this debt and deficit and paying for it. Mm -hmm. Do you think – I noticed you wrote something fairly recently uh, advocating for a carbon tax, Mm -hmm. uh, which would lead to additional revenue Mm -hmm. from the federal coffers. Yeah. Uh, You're for that. You're for more revenues for the federal government because we – we got to pay for what we've committed to. We have to pay for what we've committed to, and uh, I, uh, I wrote that uh, article in the context of the current debate about infrastructure policy. And there seems to be uh, growing bipartisan support for spending something around a trillion dollars on infrastructure, and uh, the uh, consensus around spending is uh, significantly ahead of consensus around how to pay for it. And the administration uh, really wants to increase uh, the corporate tax rate, really wants to increase the capital gains tax rate. I think it would be um, uh, significantly better 
to tax pollution than to tax corporate income. Uh, I think it would be significantly better to tax carbon emissions than to um, than to tax uh, risk taking. Uh, and uh, and I don't think you have any problem with the fact that that might impose a little burden on on middle class Americans. No, 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 no. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, you know, Catching what a, this, Phoebe? He wants to tax you. <laughs> Phoebe is uh, uh, perfectly able to afford a little extra tax. Is that what you're going to say? Well, if, if if Phoebe wants the government to provide so much stuff, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, then, I don't know uh, that Phoebe does. <laughs> Um, but that is the issue. Uh, there, there, there seems to be uh, a, a bipartisan consensus that the middle class should not have to finance the spending programs that the middle class wants. Uh, and I think that uh, that is, um, from an economic perspective, not plausible. There, there simply is not enough money uh, in the you know. Top one percent or top one tenth of one percent uh, to uh, pay for everything that that um, that the American people through their elected representatives want to want to want to want to spend, uh, and uh, I think as a as a as a moral proposition, um, imposing uh, those sorts of financial burdens on the next generation of Americans in the form of higher debt. Uh, and uh, treating the top one percent like they're um, uh, an income generating uh, mechanism uh, and not as shared citizens in our democracy, and trying to uh, uh, cut spending programs for the poor are all, I think, very problematic. Uh, we should we should not be looking to the poor first. We should not treat people at the top as an income generating mechanism. We should not saddle future generations with with the bill for the spending we want to enjoy today. We should decide uh, what kind of a government we want, and part of deciding that is is deciding how much we want to 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 pay in taxes. Do you have in your mind a a percent of GDP that the federal government should raise in revenues or a percent of GDP that the federal government should spend? I mean, it's it's some below 20% now and you do you have a number that you like? Well, revenue is below 20. Spending is 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 above yes. 20. Yeah. I um I don't have I I don't have a a magic a magic number. Um you know, I think uh but that, you think they should be together? They should be. I think they should be closer together yeah, than they are. Yeah, I think yeah. they should be closer together than they are. Certainly in a in a in kind of a present value sense. Uh, uh, you know, I I think that that projected spending on both Medicare and Social Security is is troublingly large. Uh, I think that we are at a point where uh, you can't solve those problems by spending cuts alone. The American people. Well, you 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 can, of course, arithmetically, but the American people would not tolerate. A thirty percent reduction in in projected Medicare spending or or things of that nature, and so you're going to have to 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 raise some income taxes just uh, or some taxes I should say just mechanically. And so then the question is, where do you want to look for that tax revenue? Um, and you know, basic base consumption tax is better than a broad, income tax focused yes, on the rich. That's right. Um, if you tax something, you get less of it. Do you want less corporate income? Do you want less individual income? Do you want less risk taking and entrepreneurship, or do you want less pollution? Uh, 
you raised, you brought up the issue of Medicare and Social Security, but I want to talk about Medicare and Medicaid, the mm. big healthcare expenditures. This is we're 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 meeting a week or so, or shortly after the Supreme Court ruled for the third time mm-hmm. that the Affordable Care Act is constitutional and shall remain in place. Um, Republicans have tried political avenues to change that, and they failed at that. Um, so I ask you, do you think, at least in the next five years, that we are pretty much stuck with a heavy government intervention in health care through Medicare and Medicaid, and we're not going to get a, a significant structural reform away from the way in which the Democrats want to run health care? Well, I think we're certainly um, going to be in that place until uh, at least the midterm elections, uh, and I think almost surely until uh, the next presidential term. Um, although, you know, there's always the one or two percent chance that um, if Republicans make huge gains in the midterms and are serious about governing, then, you know, you could see you could see some sort of progress. You know, maybe 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 one or two percent is is too high uh, for <laughs> yes. that. Uh, maybe it's more like point zero one or point. Well, they could have political success. My point um, was even if they had political success, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be based on a on a uh, uh, agenda to to drastically reform health care because it seems to not be selling. I think that's right. I think the Republican Party does not have a clear uh, alternative vision for what they want. Um, and, you know, I think the 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 the, the big uh, kind of fundamental debate um, that the uh, that the um, Affordable Care Act settled was whether or not uh, universal health care coverage was the goal. And prior to the ACA, uh, reasonable people of goodwill argued it wasn't the goal. Um, and the Obama administration said it, it was the goal. And uh, I think that the Obama administration convinced the American people uh, of that. Uh, the ACA, of course, does not get us to universal coverage, but it does get us closer. Uh, and I think right now, arguing that um, that that we should be comfortable uh, with 85% coverage or 90% coverage, something something of that nature. Um, that may have been a, a winnable argument um, 15 years ago, but I think it's not a winnable argument now. Well, but wait a minute. I mean, I I think that's a fair point, but isn't it a little more than that? They that settled that it's universal health care coverage should be the goal, and it should be guaranteed by government. Um. Yes, I think that there is. Uh, I think I think there is uh, uh, room uh, for debate and disagreement on the mechanism, and that's where I think Republicans should be should be focused. Um, what? Let's accept that universal coverage is the goal, and the government plays a role. In and it. the government plays some role in that. Uh, how do we? How do we do that? How do we do that in a way that is better than the Affordable Care Act? How do we do that in a way that is better than Medicaid? Uh, you say less costly, less costly, uh, 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 more um, uh, tethered to what consumers actually want, uh, friendlier to innovation, uh, allowing insurance companies to design 
different kinds of health insurance products uh, rather than having the Department of Health and Human Services tell insurance companies what they're allowed to do. Um, and well, wait, wait, Mike. You listed a bunch of things that were goals to improve the current system, and we started with less costly, and then you reeled off a few others. Mm-hmm. You didn't say quality, which I found was interesting. I was about to say that, but then you interrupted. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but if you were to, but those are, isn't it one really big problem and four not as big problems? Well, relatively small problems, not even close to the size of the problem of the cost. I think the way you get the cost down is by injecting the kinds of market forces that allow for insurance companies to be innovative, that allow for greater consumer choice, um, and that uh, uh, let people and 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 that have uh, less scope for heavy-handed regulation that allow people to to buy. Uh, the insurance products that they that they want to buy. Uh, for example, um, if the real problem facing a healthy male twenty five year old is that he gets hit by a bus or uh, gets some sort of a catastrophic illness, um, then it should be permissible for an insurance company to design an insurance product. Uh, that is that is very bare bones, where if uh, that 25-year-old guy gets a sinus infection uh, or an ear infection, he has to pay the bill. Um, that's not socialized throughout the system. Yeah. But if he gets hit by a bus, then, uh, then, and then, uh, uh, then his insurance um, uh, will, will bear the cost of that. Uh, you know, that is the kind of... And looking back over the past 10 years, you think that reforms that brought market discipline to healthcare here and there have successfully been proposed and passed and put into law? Well, I think there have been a lot of good proposals for how to do this. Um, and I think the Republicans uh, had a had a shot at this in 2017, and um, that didn't work. Uh, and the Republican Party uh, did not come together around a, a unified vision and 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 their focus was uh getting rid of the ACA not uh replacing the ACA with uh with a with a with a system that would be better and cheaper um and uh and as a consequence of 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 that focus they weren't able to get it done so let's turn to other um uh potential problems with um sort of right-of-center policy formulation, there seems to be, and you've written about this, and I just want to sort of, could you give us the summary of your view on this? And, and I'd be happy to do that. Uh, that there seems to be a, a new fascination with industrial policy oh, yes. on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and long, uh, long been there on the left. Long been there on the left, and industrial policies, you know, sort of command from the top telling who the winners and losers are. What You tell us what it is and, and why you're troubled by it. Well, I, uh, uh, you know, think that this again is 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 nothing nothing new. It's the kind of thing that uh, kind of you know mainstream Democrats and and, and progressives have have uh, long championed the idea that the federal government should um, treat different industries differently, uh, make determinations that this industry is uh, of particular importance and should therefore receive. Uh, special treatment by the tax code, or special treatment in the form of subsidies, things of this nature, uh, and and uh, you know, but these other industries shouldn't. And you're seeing this um, with manufacturing, 
you're seeing this uh, uh, with you know this this kind of new buzzword of of resilience um, in terms of supply chains and 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 production processes. Uh, on the left, you're seeing it with um, uh, with those things as well. You're also seeing it with you know green energy and 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 these sorts of um, uh, these sorts of uh, industries uh, as part of the president's kind of broader plan for infrastructure. You know why is it bad? Um, it's bad uh, because um, it doesn't work. Uh, there's a long history of the federal government attempting to uh, pick winners and losers in markets, um, and uh, and and those attempts don't achieve the objectives. Uh, the the most uh, prominent recent uh, uh, example of protectionism uh, was uh, President Trump's trade wars. Those trade wars, uh, the best evidence suggests, actually reduced employment in the manufacturing sector. Um, everybody agrees that they raised consumer prices across the board and had and had uh, diffuse uh, harm throughout the economy. But even judged by their own goal of helping the manufacturing sector, they they failed. Well, well, I I, I take your point one hundred percent on that. But but just I wanted to ask you this question about China specifically. Mm-hmm. Is there any trade restriction or tariff concerning Chinese products that you would support? Well, sure. I I I think that uh, these sorts of unilateral measures don't work. Um, but if uh, uh, the United States were to assemble a coalition of other countries – and engage in a coordinated action against China using economic diplomacy to uh, attempt to change China's behavior in terms of the forced transfer of technology, in terms of intellectual property theft, uh, uh, in terms of um, dumping, in terms of other bad practices, uh, that that very likely could be successful. So and, you, you, you termed it economic diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 <laughs> that's a kind of a nice term, but gra- th- that a, would mean a, a tariff or quota. It's a beautiful term. That could be a tariff or a quota. Could be a restriction on trade. It definitely could be a restriction yeah. on trade. Absolutely. And but but did you just say that you would only support that if it was in concert with other countries? You could we could not do it on our own. I think it, I think it, I think it it would only work if we did it with other countries. Um, and President Trump. Uh, did the opposite of this, of course. He he he, uh, you know, made Europe and Canada uh, enemies um, in 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 his trade war. Uh, President Biden just got back from uh, some time in Europe, and one of the big things that happened was uh, a kind of cessation uh, a cessation of hostilities uh, between the United States and Europe over uh, uh, commercial aircraft manufacturing, yes. Boeing, yeah, Boeing and Airbus. Uh, and the the idea there is to say, okay, let's let's call a ceasefire on the Boeing and Airbus war, so that the United States and Europe can present a unified front against China, which is uh, uh, considerably um, uh, increasing its capabilities to to produce aircraft. That is good. That's the kind of thing that should be happening. Um, uh, China may be attempting to join TPP. Uh, which would be a catastrophe. 
the United States should not only try and block China from joining TPP, the United States should also join TPP. TPP is, uh, of course, the um, trade pact that President Obama worked out in his in his final term and that the United States did not join under President Trump. That would be uh, another example of, of using economic diplomacy to apply pressure to China through a multilateral effort. Um, these are these are not only things that 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 stand to work against China. These are things the United States should be doing in an affirmative. Someone said at a at a cocktail party I was at the other day that that they wished that they could more easily see um, uh, when they buy a product whether it was manufactured in China. So they that have they, the little stickers. So they could not buy it. Mm. But do you do you encourage that kind of thinking? Well, I think I think if people don't want to buy uh, uh, products that are produced in China, then then they shouldn't, and um, that's a perfectly reasonable choice. It may drive up their costs and their cost of living, but they should do it. It may drive up the yeah, exactly. Yeah, it may drive up those individuals uh, those individuals' costs, but you know people make all sorts of choices about things that they uh, that, that, that they that they that they that they will and won't buy. Um, I think uh, uh, there are many things I don't buy. Um, based on personal preferences, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know that's that's something that people Michael is the father of. of two young toddlers and uh, and a husband of a lovely wife, and and I'm sure you buy a lot of products these days. I bet you're in a you're quite a consumer of of various gadgets and things for your kids. Am I right about that? Our uh, house um, often looks like an Amazon. Warehouse, because there are so many Amazon boxes every day. They're stacked up. Sometimes they're taller than me. Um, and uh, I feel like I have a side job of breaking down boxes and putting them uh, in the recycling. I spend a lot of time doing that, um, and uh, uh, I don't get paid for it. Um, but, you know, maybe one day. Uh, Michael, you know, you have a very important role here in Washington and here in the country as the director of economic policy uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. Who is your role model? Robert Dorr. No, no. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> no. In the economic policy world, in the history of America, who is the, the, the economic policy uh, person, uh, scholar, leader, who you have really admired and, and tailor your career after, or would? I don't know if there's any if there's any one person. I mean, I think that uh, that the country has been very fortunate to have um, uh, a a number of uh, individuals over 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 the decades who have um, had the background and and the training and the knowledge to uh, form judgments about what is in the best interests of the country. Uh, and who have uh, been able to push the country in in the right direction in various ways. Sometimes uh, uh, that has uh, involved serving in government, um, and there have been uh, many great economic policymakers um, that have really advanced uh, the welfare of the United States over the years. Sometimes that has taken place in the form of— So George Shultz or Marty Feldstein or Paul Volcker. Any of them? Do you like all of them? All great. Um, I mean, Paul Volcker uh, uh, was a tremendously uh, important and influential Fed chairman who um, uh, did what he thought was right despite enormous consequences. I mean, the unemployment rate uh, as a consequence of the Volcker disinflation rose above 10 percent. Interest rates uh, uh, were uh, around double that. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, that inflicted a lot of short-term harm on the economy. But, uh, but Chairman Volcker thought that was the right thing to do. And, and I think he, I think the four decades that followed really. Have you been disappointed in Secretary Yellen's performance so far? I I have been uh, uh, disappointed with some aspects of of, of Secretary Yellen's performance. Um, of course, you don't know uh, you know what's happening behind the scenes and in private meetings and and things of that. The Treasury that Secretary, nature. who's a former Fed chair, is being overruled by staffers at the White House. I I hope that that's not what's that's happening. What it looks like. Uh, I hope that's that's not what's what what, what what's happening. I think uh, I think that the administration has made some. Uh, clear mistakes and uh you know again they've had one accomplishment uh so far which is the 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 february stimulus a political accomplishment is not a policy accomplishment they've they've done one thing so far (laughs) which is the the word accomplishment especially especially when that accomplishment i think was a pretty uh uh, um, not bipartisan piece of legislation. See, I think of the word accomplishment as uh, kind of a values-neutral word. You could have a I bad don't. accomplishment, look you could that have up? a good accomplishment. Get accomplishment from the Biden perspective. You could have, you could have well, a, that, that you could say it that way. You could, have a, <laughs> you could say it that way. <laughs> like, like, you no, know, accomplishment building. is definitely not values-neutral. Um, <laughs> I think we should look this up at some point. John's, gonna, okay. John's looking at Google now. Um, I think John. I think I think I think I think John's determined that I'm correct about something this. that has been achieved successfully. Mm-hmm. Okay. A successful achievement of a task. Successful. Yeah. It brought happened. to brought to completion. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> in any event, um, you know that that uh, that uh, was clearly too big. Yeah. And um, I think if you had uh, asked all the people who supported it. Um, Six months before, three months before uh, it passed, you know what what they thought the right size was for another round of stimulus. You wouldn't have gotten many people who would have said it was that big. The constituent elements of it, I think, were um, uh, were um, misguided and harmful in some instances. Uh, and uh, it would, you know, I think the the, the role for uh, economists in government. Is to really push back on on those sorts of uh, those sorts of proposals that um, may seem like smart politics, but are clearly bad policy. So you mentioned earlier this question of the labor shortage, which in some places is it feels like certainly looks sure. Like. Um, and you, the I think the principal cause that you cited was the excessive benefits that are allowing people to stay off the, on the sidelines. But out of the side of my corner of my eye, I saw recently a headline about retirements. Mm-hmm. People people who dropped out of the labor force and were 60 or 58 mm-hmm. or 62, mm-hmm. and they would have due, due to COVID or mm-hmm. due to the and, – and now they're not coming back. The other cause that some people have raised but has been, I think, pretty successfully um, uh, rejected is child care uh, mm-hmm. needs. What about those two other causes for the labor shortage? Are, are you are you concerned that the aging population is retiring earlier and it may be harder to get them back into the labor force? And what about uh, the, the burdens of child care keeping people on the sidelines? Yeah, so I don't know which of these is the most important factor. And the economy is changing so rapidly that uh, that the most important factor you know, is, is likely uh, different month to month. Um, I think that as we move through the summer, 
the unemployment benefits are going to be the dominant factor if they aren't already. Um, whether or not they were the dominant factor in April, I think, is um, uh, a subject of, um, uh, of reasonable debate. Uh, I certainly think that, um, that the evidence uh, right now suggests that we're going to have some early retirements uh, and that that's going to uh, make it harder for the economy to recover all the jobs that were lost. I think child care has been a real issue uh, and was a real issue this spring for sure. Uh, I think the unemployment benefits were a big issue this spring. I also Jason Furman and Melissa Carney's little study show that child care wasn't a problem. Uh, that's 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 a conclusion from uh, from their uh, analysis. These are economists uh, who I know you hold in high regard. I think I think Jason and Melissa are are are, are terrific, um, and I think that they have produced a piece of evidence in favor of the view that child care is less of an issue than um, uh, not an issue at all. Uh, maybe, maybe a much smaller issue than many think. Overstated uh, by the Democrats. Their their issue, their their analysis has certainly uh, influenced uh, my views on this. Uh, it has not uh, convinced me definitively that childcare uh, issues aren't significant. Uh, and and of course, you know, there's there are. Uh, there are limits on um, uh, how how quickly employers can hire and fill vacancies and do things of that nature uh, as well. And 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 you know we'll we'll have to figure out where kind of where things where well, things you used settle. to always say if once you drop out of the labor force and you're not working, the longer the time goes on, mm-hmm. the harder it is to get them back. Oh yeah. And if you're 61, mm-hmm. it may be over. Sure. It may never come back. Yeah yeah. I mean if you're you know, look, we have uh, – the, the U.S. government has transferred a lot of income to people. Um, the stock market is doing great. Uh, and if you're 61, 62 years old, you've been working from home for 15 months uh, and your retirement portfolio is looking good and your boss is saying, hey, we want you we want you back. And, and uh, you know, you may be thinking, well, you know, I was going re- to retire in two or three years anyway and – uh, I have enough money saved up, and and you know I don't want to I don't want to do that. So then, do you have a sort of low and un- low unemployment, low growth country? If the labor for if the there just isn't enough workers. Yeah, uh, that's that's right. I mean, there are there are two two ways that an economy grows. One is by adding workers. And the second way is for uh, the workers you have to produce more more stuff, uh, to produce more goods, to produce more services, uh, labor force growth and productivity growth. Um, and uh, if we are in a situation where there is um, significant downward pressure on labor force growth, then we're left with productivity. And I think we're going to have a very strong productivity growth over over the next few years. Um, but uh, we would have even stronger economic growth if we had um, a more uh, a faster growing labor force. Well, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask you. Sometimes, you know, when I have conversations with scholars of the great renown and wisdom of people like Dr. Strain, I worry that that it's been too elementary. Too basic. I think it's been great. No, no. But is there some uh, really serious, you know, esoteric point that I haven't asked you about that you'd want to make about the state of our economy? No, I don't think so. Um, I think uh, uh, you know the the principal um, uh, issue that's that's on my mind 
is this imbalance between uh, the demand and supply sides of the economy uh, and uh, the effect that that imbalance has on the way that, that, that households and businesses and investors think about the economy and think about the future of the economy. Um, and uh, we uh, saw last week again that the Fed has um, uh, updated its views uh, we need to keep an eye on whether or not households, businesses, and investors update update their views, and we need to see whether or not this kind of herky jerky start and stop uh, uh, demand and supply issues um, uh, resolve themselves, and 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 we and we get back to normal in the fall, or or whether uh, they portend deeper changes. So uh, since you keep you mentioned investors a couple times there, and and our colleague Des Lockman had another piece this week saying that the imbalances are so severe we're going to have a big, big crash yeah. at some point in the future. That, am I summarizing his view? I think that's his view. Are you taking? Uh, you're an investor. Or do, you, do you do you do you are you are you very safe? Are you in bonds and cash only now, or or where are you on that? Well, I um, uh, am more of a life cycle <laughs> yeah. investor, yeah. you know, and so I'll uh, I'll move into bonds um, later when I'm closer to to retirement. You're so young, you know. Uh, anyway. Did I say he's the brightest young economist? In America? <laughs> I uh, don't expect to ever be able to retire, and so maybe I'll never move into bonds. <laughs> So that's interesting. Okay. Thank you. Phoebe? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to wrap up in a minute, but I did want to ask kind of one big picture lessons learned from the past year and a half question. So kind of knowing what we know now, if it was March 2020 again, how would you weigh the cost of lockdowns now? Um, And kind of now that we've used this mixture of direct payments, PPP, increased unemployment, what do you think you would prescribe if we could go back in time? So uh, in March of 2020, I didn't expect uh, that there would be a recession because I didn't expect that there would be lockdowns. Um, I thought that uh, people would slow down their spending considerably. I thought that the economy would slow quite a bit. Um, but uh, I I thought the unemployment rate would rise a little bit, but I did not expect uh, you know a twenty. I think we did a did a call with a separate community, Michael and I, mm-hmm. in March of twenty, and Michael said this is going to be over very quick. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of AI. You know, and, I, and, 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 and you know what would that have looked like? I mean, it would have looked like you know people not traveling, people socializing less, people going to restaurants less, um, but you know people riding the the subway and and, and the metro less. Uh, but people still going to work, kids still going to school. Um, you know, again, a slow, a considerable slowdown, um, a stalling out of the economy, but nothing like the economic catastrophe we experienced in March and April. Uh, and uh, of course, um, uh, you know what happened in 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 March. Uh, uh, some governors uh, concerned about the uh, coronavirus in their states. Um, started imposing really uh, severe restrictions on business activity. And uh, the dominoes started to fall. Um, and as the dominoes were falling, Congress said, oh, oh geez, we need to uh, do something here to support the economy. And that's where the CARES Act came from, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, Unemployment Benefit Enhancement, some of the things that you that you asked about. Um, that, that, you know, I think caught people, uh, some people, by, by surprise. Um, the jury, I think, is still out uh, on the basic question, 
you know, how much of the slowdown in economic activity was the result of voluntary uh, measures taken by individuals and taken by businesses out of uh, concern about catching the virus and how much uh, of the slowdown in activity was driven by the lockdown measures themselves. I don't have uh, a firm view on that at this point because there really is a significant uh, conflict uh, in, in, in the research literature on that question. My suspicion is that when the dust settles, it will show that the lockdown measures themselves had a really significant role in, in the slowdown in economic activity, um, that voluntary uh, 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 restrictions uh, definitely played a role, but that the lion's share of what we saw was driven by the lockdowns. Um, and so then the question from a public health perspective uh, is, you know, was that, was that necessary? Um, the second big piece of information I'm, I'm waiting to see is uh, how effective were masks? Um, and I think that if the evidence shows that masks really were as effective as uh, they seem to be in, in, say, the American Southwest during the uh, uh, during the summer of 2020, um, then uh, you know the conclusion likely is going to be that the lockdown measures were an overreaction, and that we could have achieved public health goals through uh, uh, through social distancing measures and masking that were much less severe than. Uh, having state governments force businesses to shut down and ask people to to remain in their homes, um, and so that's that's something that, you know that's an extremely important question that uh, I think we're going to get better evidence on, um, kind of as as time goes by. Uh, you know, stepping back from that, I do think we can say at this point that uh, that many of the of 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 the individual decisions that governments made were uh, were bad decisions. Um, I can't imagine a, a cost-benefit analysis uh, that would conclude that keeping children out of school for a year was the right the right mm-hmm. decision. Um, that uh, I think is going to be uh, judged by history um, as a, a significant, significant error, uh, an error that is going to echo in the lives of many of those kids, particularly low-income kids, uh, for uh, decades to come. We kept tattoo parlors open but kept children out of classrooms, which I think is um, uh, a, uh, a failure. Very good question to end on and a good answer as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining well, thank you for having me. Oh, it was enjoyable. There we go. There we go. Chris See, Chris I told Carter you. Walter. It'd be great. It was great. We had a-